I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, it's Kyla McDonald here. Now, as this year comes to a close, I'm sure you, like us, have taken stock. You have looked back. You've tried to pinpoint the key moments for your year. Now, that has been difficult this year and last year as well, actually, because of the slight days that the pandemic has thrown us all into. Time seems to be a blur, seems to be difficult to kind of focus on what those things were that we really treasured. So what we did at Stories of Our Times was we got our heads together, we did some big thinking, we sought out some blue sky and found it. And we've managed to find our favourite episodes, those episodes that really stand out in our memories from 2021 as being significant, important, of value to us, and we hope of value to you as well. So welcome to our run of our favourite stories of our times from 2021. Today, we are revisiting a crucial episode that we first broadcast in May. We headed to the US, where America's opioid crisis recently passed a grim milestone. 100,000 deaths from overdoses in the past year. This was one that we couldn't not revisit. Let's consider where it all began. Between 1999 and 2018, some 450,000 people died in the US from an opioid overdose involving prescription drugs like OxyContin or illicit opioids. Before ever the coronavirus killed nearly 600,000 Americans, there was another epidemic sweeping through the country. It's important to recognize that today we are seeing more people killed because of opioid overdose than traffic accidents. Every 19 minutes, someone dies from an accidental drug overdose. Most of the time, it's from prescription drugs like oxycodone or hydrocodone. Once hailed as a pain-obliterating wonder drug, OxyContin helped give birth to one of the most devastating public health crises in the developed world. To me, this is a story, it's a kind of a family saga about the Sacklers. It's a crime story about their company, which committed federal crimes for years. But it's also a story about systemic failure. A new book on America's opioid catastrophe tells the story of the family behind the pharmaceutical company that created OxyContin and their culpability for the carnage their product wrought. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times, I'm David Aronovich. Today, Empire of Pain, the Sacklers and the Opioid Crisis. 
used to see maybe two overdoses a month, and now we're seeing two to three a day. Two to three overdoses a day. In 2015, average life expectancy in America dropped for the first time in 100 years and has declined every year since. One culprit stands out. It's not even 10.30 in the morning in Huntington, West Virginia, and it's happened again. Another overdose, this time just outside a fast food restaurant. A woman is unconscious and turning blue on the sidewalk. 58,000 Americans were killed in the Vietnam War. In 2018 alone, over 67,000 were killed by drug overdoses. In 2017, it was over 70,000. In 2016, over 63,000. The war on drugs is a Vietnam War every year. Between 1999 and 2017, deaths from drug overdoses in the US tripled. Those from opioid overdoses increased almost sixfold. Opioid drugs have become the biggest cause of death of people under 50 in America. It can happen to anybody from any background, but usually it starts with a prescription. Powerful painkillers that leave the patient hooked. Many turn to street drugs like heroin when the legitimate treatment is over. I've interviewed lots of people who will say, I used to tell myself I was not the kind of person who would ever use heroin. I would never stick a needle in my arm. Patrick Radden Keefe is a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine, and he's the author of a new book, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. The Sacklers are the family behind the company that produced one of the most used prescription opioid painkillers, OxyContin. The problem is that, you know, a pill that's prescribed by a doctor is much more approachable. You have fewer inhibitions. That's the on-ramp. And then once you're taking these things and you're addicted to them, then you'll find that your inhibitions go out the window because otherwise, if you don't take something, then withdrawal will kick in and it's savage. If you've come across the Sackler name already, that's not because it's marked on their products. More likely, you've wandered into the well-marked Sackler behest to some university, art gallery or museum. The Sacklers, until really just a few years ago, I think to the degree that people were aware of them, they were known as a very, very wealthy, at this point, Anglo-American family. And they are very famous for philanthropy. They've given away hundreds of millions of pounds over the years in the US, in the UK, all around the world. And they have a tendency to put their name on prominent institutions, so whether it's gallery wings or research facilities or lecture halls, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, there's the Sackler Wing, the Guggenheim, Harvard University, Columbia, NYU, the Louvre, and then all over the UK, I mean, the British Museum, the Serpentine Sackler, the Globe, Oxford, the list goes on and on. Originally, the Sacklers were these three brothers, Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond, whose family had come to the U.S. from Eastern Europe at the turn of the last century. They grew up in Brooklyn during the Great Depression. They were Jewish. They experienced terrible anti-Semitism. And all three became physicians, but also businessmen, and established this pharmaceutical empire. You know, until recently, they were really known mainly for their philanthropy, but it turns out that much of this philanthropy has been underwritten by this pharma business. So for a long while, these were people who you might say they 
in Tom Lehrer's famous phrase, they got rich by doing good, or appeared to get rich by doing good. They made their money making stuff that people wanted to make them better, they were good at it, and they used some of the money that they got from that to endow all these wonderful institutions that we like. And that's kind of where people were with it. And then... And then it began to emerge that the vast bulk of the wealth which had seemed, I think, a bit mysterious from the outside. You know, people didn't really know who, where did the money come from with this family. It emerged that most of the wealth came from the sale of this drug, OxyContin, which Purdue Pharma released in 1996 and is an opioid and is a painkiller, which was very successful at treating pain, but which the company also marketed as not addictive. And this was a, a fairly novel step because up until that point, there had been a general understanding by doctors that you need to be very careful prescribing opioids because they can be quite addictive. Let's row back a moment, just a little moment, because Sacklers have already become successful. Their company is not called Sackler Brothers. It's called Purdue Pharma, I presume because they bought it as Purdue Pharma and then made it their family company. Is that right? They wanted their name, the family name, on buildings and museum wings and anything associated with charity and philanthropic giving. They didn't want it on the family company. So in 1952, they buy this pharmaceutical company, a kind of moribund pharmaceutical company called Purdue Frederick. They don't change the name of the company. And this is a kind of continuity throughout the ensuing decades. Even when the company changed its name to Purdue Pharma and was generating billions of dollars a year, you could go to the website of Purdue Pharma and look and look for the Sackler name and find it nowhere. Now, let's go back to OxyContin because one of the first things that is intriguing about this is that it emerges at a time when physicians in the States, and actually in Britain as well, are worried about how they're treating pain. Right here, it's just pounding out. Mary Lumato has a headache, a pounding headache, and we're going to ask her to test a new and potent pain reliever, new extra-strength Tylenol. So there was a new movement afoot, really starting in the 1970s but into the 1980s, and then it flourishes in the 90s. New extra-strength Tylenol in capsules or tablets. When used as directed, you get Tylenol safety, and you can't buy a more potent pain reliever without a prescription. In which some doctors began to feel that the medical establishment had not been treating pain aggressively enough, that pain was regarded as a symptom of other problems, but not a problem in and of itself. There was too much of a sense that patients should just have a stiff upper lip and deal with it. And very closely associated with this kind of revisionist approach to pain was a sense that doctors had been too stingy about prescribing opioid painkillers. And so there were these powerful drugs available at the time. It was you know, drugs like morphine, which doctors were not prescribing enough. And they would really reserve these types of painkillers for cancer pain, for end-of-life situations, for quite extreme pain in which any concerns about the risk of addiction would seem trivial in, in the face of what was going on. There's no question that our best, strongest pain medicines are the opioids but these are the same drugs that have a reputation for causing addiction and other terrible things. This Purdue ad from 1998 features Dr. Alan Spanos expressing his firm, professional view that opiates should be more widely used. And so these drugs, which I repeat, are our best, strongest pain medications, should be used much more than they are for patients in pain. 
the Sackler family and, and Purdue set out to ride that wave. You know, they said these drugs should be more widely prescribed. And their whole push was we want to develop a painkiller not just for extreme cancer pain, but for back pain, for injuries you might have sustained on the job, for sports injuries, for moderate pain. They introduced OxyContin in 1996. And so their whole marketing pitch, it was actually a line that they devised, a kind of tagline. They said OxyContin is the one to start with and the one to stay with. The one to start with, the one to stay with. Yeah, it's not some extreme solution you graduate to. It's the one to start with. So they surfed the wave of this apparent physician change. We've got to offer more by way of pain relief. And they say, essentially, the problem up until now has been that the best way of relieving pain has been opioids. But of course, people get addicted to opioids. So they produce a drug which they think will not cause that form of addiction, essentially. That's right. There's a couple of things going on. I mean, one is that they produce this very powerful drug, OxyContin, which has a what they call a contin release mechanism. So basically, it's just oxycodone, which is actually an old drug, an opioid that had been around for a long time, but in very large doses. And then it has a, a kind of a seal on the pills. And the idea is you just take one pill and it will slowly allow the drug to filter in your, into your bloodstream over the course of 12 hours. They believed, not on the basis of any real convincing science, but just kind of aspirationally, they believed that this would make it less prone to abuse and addiction. And so they sent out this army of sales representatives to tell doctors, and I've interviewed lots of these sales reps, and they would come in and they would say, you know, we've looked into this, it is addictive less than 1% of the time. If it's prescribed by a doctor, it's addictive less than 1% of the time. That was what they repeated again and again. Perhaps 1% or less of those people actually become addicted. Fewer than one half of one percent. Less than one percent ever become addicted. Studies show there's virtually no risk of addiction. It was a very, very powerful marketing pitch that they had. And, and as we know in the pharmaceutical business, the greatest rewards are reserved for companies that release a new product that's just so different from everything else that's available that the fact that they're the exclusive producers, you know, means that there are great riches to be made. And, and this was the case with OxyContin. This is a drug that has generated some $35 billion in revenue since its release. And the pitch at the beginning was pretty irresistible. You know, you could use it for not just uh, severe but moderate pain, a market which they internally, Purdue, estimated could be as many as 40 to 50 million people in the United States suffering from some form of moderate pain. And there were no side effects and you couldn't get addicted. Of course, all of this turns out to be too good to be true. But physicians bought into it, crucially. They did. And this, to me, was one of the more startling aspects of this whole project is I think I'm probably not alone in tending to put a great deal of trust in my doctor. You know, when I see my doctor and my, I say, here are my symptoms, doctor says, here's what you got and here's what you need and writes me a prescription. And I'm no expert. I haven't gone to medical school. There's an almost childlike sense in which I think we place ourselves in the hands of these people. It was startling for me to learn just how easily swayed physicians can be. I could give you a bunch of examples, but just to give you one quick one, you know, these sales reps would go out and they were heavily incentivized to try and persuade doctors to prescribe the drug, to prescribe it in high doses, keep increasing the dose. And one of the tools they had was just buying meals for doctors, you know, whether it's a fancy steak dinner or even just, 
a $10 lunch that they might pick up for a busy doctor in the middle of the day. And if you talk to physicians, they'll say, oh, I would never be swayed. I would never change the way I prescribe because somebody bought me a meal. They're quite insulted by the insinuation. But one thing I discovered in my research is Purdue Pharma at a certain point is spending $9 million a year just to buy food for doctors. And they were very aware of precisely what the return on investment would be on that money they're spending. So you better believe that it's working. And presumably also the physicians were rather pleased to have something they could give to a patient who said, I'm in pain. Look, I've got, I've, I've got the magic thing for you. Absolutely. And, and this is another aspect of this. I mean, I, I think there's a tendency when, you're, when you look at this story from a distance to think that greed was the only driver. But I actually think that there was a great deal of idealism, the sort of folly of idealism here as well. I've interviewed doctors who said, look, imagine a patient comes to you suffering from pain and suddenly you have this tool, you have this thing that you're told will have no downsides. And I should say, I mean, the drug works at relieving pain, right? So there's also the kind of reinforcing cycle that happens when a patient comes to you in pain, you prescribe OxyContin. The OxyContin makes the pain go away. Since I've been on this new pain medication, I have not missed one day of work. And my boss really appreciates that. Lauren is there every day. That's from the same 1998 ad you heard earlier, the one with the doctor. So I'm able to be a productive person again, which is really great. Unfortunately, that's not the end of the story. But for a time, I do think that reinforced it. Now, in your book, there's a moment, a really kind of chilling moment, when you have a representative called Stephen May, who's a, a salesman for Purdue for OxyContin. And then he goes on a drive to see one of his doctors. Stephen May was a former sales rep who I got to know. He was really there during the kind of boom years. It was the late 90s he started working for Purdue. And he told me an amazing thing. He said that the doctors they really loved were the ones who wrote lots and lots of prescriptions for OxyContin. In fact, they had a nickname for these doctors. They called them whales. In Las Vegas, uh, casinos refer to the big ticket gamblers as whales. And so if you had a, a doctor who was a whale, that was great. It meant more bonuses for you because you were compensated on, on the basis of how much they were prescribing. And so one day, he, everything was going great. He was making a ton of money. He loved working at Purdue. This is, I think, 1999, and he drives out to see this doctor, his whale, and he shows up and she looks very ashen, she looks very upset, and he asked what had happened, and she said that she just had a young relative die from an overdose of OxyContin. And now, she's not the only person who begins to have a story to tell about this who gets close to the Sackler family. There's also the story of Martha West. Martha West was a legal secretary at Purdue. She was there for a long time, she was there for two decades. She worked for a man named Howard Udell, who was kind of the family consigliere. He was the general counsel of Purdue, one of the very top officials, very, very loyal to the family. In 1999, Howard Udell actually had Martha West do some research into the ways in which the drug was being abused. This is significant because at the time, the company had not acknowledged that they even knew that any abuse took place. They would later say they didn't discover anything until 2000. But she did some research. She went into some news groups and wrote up a report, which she says went to the Sacklers and other officials at the company, describing people grinding the pills, snorting the pills, 
dissolving them in water and shooting them into their arms. And at a certain point, Martha West, she'd had a car accident and she had some back pain. She was walking stiffly. And Howard Udell asked her about it and he said, oh, we gotta get you on OxyContin. So the medical department set her up with a referral to a pain doctor. The pain doctor wrote a prescription. She started taking OxyContin. And she found that it didn't work for 12 hours as advertised, that the pain would come back after about nine hours. And so she started taking more of it than she was supposed to be in order to keep the pain at bay. And when that didn't work, she started feeling as though she really needed a kind of immediate release of all of that oxycodone and the pills. And having done this research into the ways in which the drug was being abused, she knew that if you crushed it, you could override that time release mechanism. So she started crushing the pills and snorting them. And eventually she becomes addicted and she's fired. After 20 years of the company, <laughs> she's just let go. But they must know this at this point. And that's also, I presume, fairly significant. The timeline here is a little bit tricky because the family and the company have always asserted that they released the drug in 1996 and it was really only in 2000, four years later, that they learned that there was a problem. I think I pretty conclusively substantiate in the book that this is not true. Um, a quick question here, Patrick. Is the only way you can become addicted to OxyContin to abuse it in this way, in other words, to crush it? There were people who abused the drug. It's chemically close to heroin. And there were people who sought out a kind of a black market high. There were also lots and lots of people, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people who were prescribed the drug by a doctor for a pain condition, started taking it, and then found that they were kind of in its grip and became addicted. It stopped working and it got increased. I think it was 40 in the morning and 40 in the evening. Remember that woman from the 1998 ad who said OxyContin changed her life? Here she is, 14 years later, talking to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel about how her life-changing prescription turned into a life-altering addiction. And then eventually that got increased. <laughs> this went on for years. Went on for years. Some of those people just take the pill, you know, the way you're supposed to. They just swallow it. But they found that they were taking more and more of them and becoming hooked. I lost my job and I lost my insurance. So it got to the point where <clears throat> I couldn't afford it and I didn't buy it one time and that was the beginning of the end for me. So you can get hooked even if you just take it in the regular way because simply you want to take more and more of them because guess what, it's got morphine in it. That's exactly right. I, I think that for the family and for the business, it was a kind of convenient moral evasion to suggest that there's this typology where there are legitimate patients, they should have access to the drug, they never get addicted. And then there are these kind of, you know, Richard Sackler, who, who was running the company for a time, the Sackler family member who's most closely associated with OxyContin, he described these people as scum of the earth, the abusers, he called them. So there are kind of reckless criminals on the one hand, sainted pain patients who never become addicted on the other. And what I found was as soon as you start looking into it, honestly, those categories tend to collapse pretty quickly. Now, what's also very interesting about this is within a few years, it takes a little bit of a lag, and you may explain this to me, we have the beginnings of a full-blown opioid prescription opioid crisis in the US. What are the links between the use of OxyContin and the development of that opioid crisis? So I would argue, and, and many others have argued, that OxyContin is kind of the tip of the spear. 
that this crisis has had several phases. And the first big phase is a phase of overprescription of these pain medicines. And it's really OxyContin that kind of changes the game. You see the sudden change in prescribing habits of American doctors that coincides quite precisely with the marketing push for OxyContin. But the nature of the big pharma business is that it's, it's quite herd-like. So other companies very quickly seeing the astonishing success that OxyContin has had start rolling out their own strong opioid painkillers to compete. You get more and more people taking these pills because doctors prescribe them. You get criminal outfits, so-called pill mills, where you have unscrupulous doctors just writing prescriptions left and right and a big black market that comes up. And then you get the second phase, which takes more than a decade to get there, where slowly doctors start becoming a little bit more cautious about prescribing these drugs. A lot of the pill mills get shut down. You get new regulations, which makes it harder to access the drugs. And it's at that point that a lot of people who are now addicted to opioids start transitioning to heroin. Coming up, what the regulators did or didn't do about OxyContin. For more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Where are the regulatory authorities in all this? Where are they at the beginning and where are they as this develops? Well, I'll tell you a little story, which I think should be indicative of where they are at the beginning. One of the characters in my book is a guy named Curtis Wright. Curtis Wright was the top official at the Food and Drug Administration in Washington, whose job it was to approve not just the sale of OxyContin in the United States, but also the marketing of the drug. So he's kind of the chief inquisitor in the U.S. federal government. 
And Curtis Wright ends up approving the drug in record time. He approves a lot of marketing claims, which turn out to be pretty bogus. And then he decides, you know, he's thinking, perhaps he should leave government. And within a year of leaving the FDA, he goes and takes a job at Purdue Pharma, the company that made the drug that he just approved, for a compensation package of roughly three times his government salary, about $400,000 his first year. So, you know, I mean, to me, this is a story, it's a kind of a family saga about the Sacklers. It's a crime story about their company, which committed federal crimes for years. But it's also a story about systemic failure. And this is true of the FDA. It's true of the Drug Enforcement Administration. It's true of the the Department of Justice in the United States. I think there are a lot of failures all around. Right. Let's get down now to the business of the Sackler's culpability, because you can see that there's an argument for them saying, we've got a great product, we really love it, we think it really works, and then blinding themselves to the negative effects, because if you think you've got something great and there's something wrong with it, you sometimes make yourself not see... At what point do we know that they could see that their product was in some way responsible? Oh, I'm not sure that they see it, fully see it today. I mean, I'm glad you put it in in the terms that you did, because I think denial is a big part of this story. The messages were there. Remember I mentioned that army of sales representatives, hundreds of sales representatives who fan out and meet doctors and pharmacists and nurses. They're like an early warning signal. So they're out there meeting people like Stephen May, that rep who sees the whale and learns that this girl has OD'd on OxyContin. They started sending messages back into the company saying, we have a problem here. And this is happening long before the family and the company have publicly acknowledged there's a problem. There were discussions at very, very high levels in the 1990s, you know, prior to 2000, when they say that they knew. So I, I think it is very safe to assume that the Sacklers were fully on notice just within a couple of years of the release of OxyContin. The question isn't what sort of folly was there in releasing the drug the way you did and making the claims, which turn out to be false, about how safe it is. For me, the real moral question is what do you do when it turns out that you were wrong, when the world starts telling you you were wrong, and when you know that people are dying, they're using your product and they're dying in, in significant numbers. And that, to me is the most significant moment. And it's the moment when the Sacklers and the company leadership just put their heads in the sand. Is there any time around then where you can see them doing that exact thing? They are now in possession of the knowledge and they are putting their hands up in denial. Oh, I mean, there are emails from Richard Sackler, I'm trying to remember if it was 97 or 98, where he talks about how, you know, I think it was insurers are raising concerns about possible addictiveness of the drug. And he says, we need to really just kind of smash this idea. We need to fight back against this idea. You have these amazing emails between the company leadership. So this is just beneath the Sacklers, but the the folks who are running the company and reporting directly to the Sacklers, where they're going back and forth about abuse and and addiction. And they're literally saying things like, should we have all this chat on email? (laughs) It's incredibly incriminating to see these people talk in real time as they're discussing all this stuff about how, you know, perhaps we shouldn't leave a paper trail. In 2015, Richard Sackler was questioned by the Attorney General of the state of Kentucky. It happened during a legal deposition as part of the state's lawsuit alleging that the family business, Purdue Pharma, 
illegally marketed the opioid painkiller OxyContin by understating its addictive properties. Towards the end of the appearance, Sackler was asked this. Sitting here today, uh, after all you've come to learn as a witness, do you believe produced conduct in marketing and promoting OxyContin in Kentucky caused any of the prescription drug addiction problems now plaguing the Commonwealth? I don't believe so. For all that, eventually, the chickens do come home to roost, don't they, for Purdue? It catches up with them slowly and then quickly. The maker of OxyContin has pleaded guilty to criminal charges for its role in creating the nation's opioid crisis. 2007, the company pleads guilty to federal criminal charges. And interestingly, in the kind of popular narrative put forth by, by Purdue and the Sacklers, after 2007, they got their act together. You know, it was really just a few bad apples. But come to find out that the crime continued. Under a settlement agreement, Purdue would plead guilty to three federal criminal charges related to its role in pushing the powerful painkiller OxyContin. In October last year, Purdue pleaded guilty to three federal criminal charges as part of an $8 billion settlement over its marketing of OxyContin. That settlement is just one of the many legal challenges the company is facing. I think there's something like 2,500 lawsuits now against Purdue. The New York Attorney General just filed new allegations against OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma. In Attorney General's office, they're building a civil case against prescription opioid maker... California Attorney General Javier Becerra is suing Purdue Pharma for its connection to the nationwide Virginia opioid... is among several states suing the OxyContin manufacturer Purdue Pharma. Almost every state in the union is suing them. Dozens of lawsuits against the Sacklers themselves. And eventually where we end up is that the Sacklers, all this time, as it does seem that the chickens are going to come home to roost, the Sacklers have been quietly pulling money out of the company. $300 million here, $400 million there. We now know that they took about $10 billion out of the company in less than a decade. Wow. And eventually when the coffers are empty, they take the company into bankruptcy. <laughs> okay, yeah, maybe something bad was happening at Purdue, but it wasn't us, and now we've been punished properly. Patrick, what were the charges that were actually preferred against them in the end? I should say this is against the company and not the family. Of course. There were a series of charges, fraud, kickbacks. It was sort of a slight difference in the particulars, but here's the thing that's really interesting is that it, the flavor of the charges was pretty much the same as in 2007. It's that you're fraudulently pushing the drug, that you're pushing it to doctors who you know are dodgy doctors who are overprescribing, that they're paying kickbacks in this case to try and increase prescriptions. And I mention that just because if these were street corner heroin dealers, <laughs> you'd probably have a two strikes policy, right? Somebody would go to prison, but nobody went to prison. No executive was charged or even named. It was one of these things where the company pled guilty, but no human beings. And so part of this story is about the way in which you can game the system effectively and evade any real meaningful accountability. There's a very telling moment in congressional testimony that happened when two of the Sacklers were hauled before Congress. This is in December, just a few months ago. And Kathy Sackler, who had been on the board for years, was asked whether she felt any, any responsibility. She's never apologized for the role that you played in the opioid crisis. So I'll ask you again, will you apologize for the role you played in the opioid crisis? And she said, 
I have asked myself over many years, I have tried to figure out, was is there anything that I could have done differently knowing what I knew then, not what I know now? And, and I, I have to say, it is, I can't, there is nothing that I can find that I would have done differently. <laughs> Which is funny for me because honestly, I, I don't know that there's a day in my life I could say that about. What's happened to OxyContin as a product? It's still on sale. There are still lots of people who use it. Sales have, have certainly leveled off, I think, to the chagrin of the family because they never really came up with a great successor product. I think what the Sacklers have proposed now is that when Purdue comes out of bankruptcy, they're suggesting, try and wrap your mind around this one, that the company will essentially become a public trust that all of the proceeds will go to addressing the opioid crisis, but that the way that that money will be raised is by the continued sale of the drug that helped initiate the crisis. Uh, it's flawless. It's <laughs> almost beautiful so, <laughs> in, in, in its structure. And where has that opioid crisis got to as of now? Nationally, there were 81,000 drug overdose deaths from May 2019 to May 2020, the highest number of overdose deaths ever recorded in a 12-month period, according to the CDC. So it's gotten much worse uh, during the pandemic in ways that I think were probably quite predictable. If you think about the social isolation and the economic dislocation that have come with life in the last 18 months, overdoses are way up. We've entered a third phase, really, where it's no longer just heroin, but also fentanyl that is killing people in very large numbers. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that is even more potent than heroin. And I should say, the Sacklers point to this and they say, we never sold heroin, we never sold fentanyl. We have no moral culpability in the deaths that are happening today. I would argue that it's a, you know, it's a somewhat attenuated causal chain, but that they very much do because in a kind of Pandora's box situation, they helped set this thing in motion. It has now taken on a very different dynamic, but that's where the, the crisis is today. It continues to rage, there's no end in sight and it's increasingly a, a heroin and fentanyl crisis. Now, for the Sacklers themselves, they have, however, taken a huge reputational hit, haven't they? They have indeed, yes. Just quite recently, just in the last two or three years, I think the public has woken up to what's happened. And you know, the family for decades was very successful in kind of writing the family out of the history of the family business. And now I think they're linked with it in a way that they won't be able to escape. On Wednesday, the Louvre Museum in Paris removed the Sackler family's name from its walls and covered signs to the Sackler Week. So you've seen institutions from New York University recently to the Louvre, which have started taking down the Sackler name from these halls and galleries where it was featured so prominently. How's this made you uh, feel it in the end, Patrick? I mean, do you feel that there has been a terrible wrong which we're now getting right? Or do you think that there's been a, a terrible wrong which actually, in effect, has not gone punished and which reveals flaws in the system which actually continue to this day? Very much the latter. I mean, I think this is a story about impunity for the elites. I don't think we're going to see any adequate form of accountability. But I will tell you just a brief story. During the height of the Great Depression, Isaac Sackler, the original patriarch, gathers his three sons, Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond, to him. And he says, you know, I've lost everything. I'm not going to be able to give you any money for your education, so you're going to have to support yourselves. But I have given you the most important thing that a father can give his sons. I've given you a good name. 
And what he tells them is, you know, if you lose a fortune, you can always earn another. But if you lose your good name, you can never get it back. They're going to keep the fortune, I think, the bulk of the fortune. Nobody's going to jail. But I think they've lost the good family name, and I, I don't think they'll ever get it back. The Sackler family declined to cooperate with Patrick in his writing of the book. I compiled a very long and detailed list of queries, which I sent to them about a lot of the material in this book, just asking, can you confirm or deny, you know, giving them a right of reply. And they initially promised that there would be a very elaborate response and they would address everything that I'd come to them with. They asked for extra time. I think I gave them five weeks in the end to respond. And in the end, they just sent a page and a half denying a few things, kind of calling my credibility and impartiality into question, but generally refusing to play ball. They just kind of boycotted the process. But that doesn't mean they weren't taking an interest. Possibly a close interest. There was a moment last summer, I was working very hard on the manuscript, went out to run an errand, and a neighbor came up as we were getting in the car and said, hey, I don't want to freak you out, but there's a, a guy in an SUV who's been parked near my house, watching your house all day. And the same guy came back on another occasion. I went with a long series of questions to Purdue Pharma and said, hey, do you know anything about this surveillance of my house? And they said, of course not. That's, you know, what, what a terrible thing. We would never do such a thing. I sent the same question to the Sacklers through their representatives and got a no comment. Right. <laughs> okay. So draw your own conclusions. <laughs> You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, New Yorker staff writer and author of Empire of Pain, Patrick Radden Keefe. You can read more about the Sackler family history and Patrick's investigation into the sale and promotion of OxyContin in his book, which is published this week. The producer was Edward Drummond, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Andrew Smiley. And look, if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea maybe for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, Send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.